Warning, the following episode of Seriously Wrong was recorded in an unjust society. It may contain trace elements of hierarchy. everyone and welcome back to the seriously wrong podcast platforms of freedom series talking about technology freedom democracy and so on how social technology can make a more utopian society welcome official welcome thank you for donating to the show unless you're listening to this in the far future where we've released it to the public or you're like a time skipper who's come back to the present with files from the future we wanted to do this series to talk about all of the different ways our current technological reality can be used to make social institutions that generate better outcomes for society and for people in society that generate more freedom and more social benefit. Yeah, it's not the case that there's some sort of like killer app or like new startup that's going to like revolutionize and democratize society and <laughs> there's there's this sort of like Silicon Valley disrupting idea like of technology. Printing, when the printing press comes out, there's going to be one magazine that just like disrupts everything and makes it all better. It's like, no, it's a there's going to be different iterations of different things. But overall, having a printing press in general is a kind of revolutionary thing. Same thing for like internet, like all this kind of computer technology, information technologies, etc. But yeah, it's not going to be like one app invented by a genius <laughs> social... With an initial public offering. Yeah. But we, yeah, we have all these sort of like printing presses that are being made all the time, all these sort of like innovations within both hardware and software technology that have created these really powerful personal computers that are like, in some cases, wearable or phones. And we have software catalogs within app stores that allow customizability of these things. There is potential within all of this, within all these technologies to sort of patch together new social technologies that are liberatory and beneficial. And we wanted to talk today about two of the key apps of the phones of the future, the smartphones of the future. <laughs> There might not actually be smartphones the way we know them now. Like maybe this is actually a dysfunctional way of using technology. Time will tell. But I think there'll probably be sort of like app type things. There'll be general purpose computing. And the things that we're going to talk about today, I think, are part of a future utopian technologically enabled society. Yeah. Just quickly before we get to that, I wanted to like thank everybody who listened to the first episode and sent us feedback and ideas and especially examples of like already existing cool projects that are out there in this realm because there's so many things out there. And we're going to try and cover a lot of that stuff in a future installment, just putting that out there. We're, we're collecting it all and it's interesting and keep sending it and we're going to get to it. But yeah, for this episode, we're going to start with a thing we've brought up before on the show in various ways, but that I think is, it's like one of the key already existing potentials with this technology that is just being held back. Not even because we need to design the app for it necessarily, but just because it's like illegal. It's illegal to do this thing currently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a foundational idea within the sort of library socialist canon. What we're talking about here is the, the universal library. We have the technological potential right now 
to have on your phone, on your computer, access to all of the writings, all of the books, and all languages produced by humankind, to have access to unlimited textbooks, unlimited documentaries or movies, access to music, access to human culture. All of this could just be a search away. It could be an app on our phone that's like the library. And we have a really interesting situation right now with the advent of this digital technology in our existing legacy libraries is there's this intellectual property regime that charges libraries, even though ebooks cost almost no money to reproduce electronically, they charge libraries more for them and they only let them lend out five at a time. But anyone who's familiar with like the control C and control V options on your computer knows that it actually having only five copies of a digital book artificially is sort of a bizarre, unusual thing in computers. And it actually takes a lot of technological development and innovation and money being spent by these companies to find ways to keep these files from being copied, to create the DRM. And what we propose is that there should be sort of a library socialist portal on the internet or on apps or elsewhere, where these restrictions are completely lifted for the purposes of human thriving and flourishing. We already have the technological potential to do this. The amount of human knowledge and experience and potential that would be unlocked by a move like this is, is hard to put into words because the amount of learning that people could do and the amount of like free access to information that they could have it would be revolutionary for society, for, for our collective knowledge, to have this access to information, to not have these artificial paywalls that keep people from accessing information. I'm currently signed up on a private torrent tracker for books, and they have all these guides on there for how to like sign up for your libraries. Overdrive is the main one that libraries use. It's like a system. You download the Overdrive app and you can take out ebooks from the library. And there's like ways to extract past the DRM. I'm just thinking about the amount of human effort, like you were saying, that goes into erecting these walls and then on the other side to like burrowing holes in them and like how to steal the books out again so they're more easily control C, control V. And like I wanted to get my account to a certain level on the site, so I spent a day or two like downloading as many books they didn't already have in their system from my library system and uploading them, stripping the DRM, doing all this stuff. And what that particular torrent site has built is just like a shadow of what could be built if the legal structures were in place to just make this all possible. Because like it wouldn't be that hard to just, you know, on the video side, merge Netflix, HBO Max, Hulu all these streaming services together into one, like put, make sure everything is on Spotify or Google music or whatever, merging it into one thing, into the same thing as the broader conglomerate, all these things together, along with all books that are in every library that are being held back behind the thing, all music, like it could all be right there as easily accessible as shows that Netflix has the rights for are accessible on Netflix to people who pay for Netflix, but everything to everyone whenever. Yeah, the Universal Library could share every password with the world. Right. <laughs> but like, is this not like the utopian dream of the internet? Or even of the concept of like education and schooling is giving everyone around the world all 8 billion of us now, 
coming up on eight. Yeah, uh, seven point nine. We're almost there. <laughs> giving access to all eight billion people on Earth, whatever information that they want, when they want it, through a UI that makes it accessible, that there's no barriers. This is a utopian dream to make a library like that in person that people can just physically visit is a utopian dream that has everything. But it's actually sort of more practical in a way, more effective and more accessible to make it not physically limited, but universal, where like people can carry it with them in their pocket. They can add to it and they can help build it. And we can have this sort of like information complex of humanity that includes everything that we know. It's an incredibly beautiful vision and we have the technological potential to do it now. We just need to change the law to make libraries exempt from copyright. I think there's a good argument to be making <clears throat> there's a good argument to make about severely limiting copyright terms, changing copyright fundamentally or abolishing copyright, but just at the basic level, giving an exemption for libraries would unlock all this potential. The only reason we don't have this is because it's illegal and it costs money to fight the legal system on this. There's been great libraries online. There's like the Ultimate Ebook Library or Tubal. Awesome ebook library was shut down. There's a lot that exists now that managed to survive despite the sort of like copyright embargoes on them. But the potential is there. And what keeps people from achieving this potential is basically just legal barriers, not a barrier of will and not a barrier of technology. And there's also types of systemic barriers, because the reason that it's hard to change those laws is because the way capitalism functions is that if you produce things and don't get paid for it, then you can't live. So the barriers you start running up against are other people fighting for their own well-being within a system that is pitting their individual well-being as someone who translates books or records audiobooks or writes books or does color correction on TV or whatever thing that they do, their well-being, their ability to get paid and to survive for what they're doing is pitted against this liberatory potential of free information. And the reason we can't have this nice thing is because we've set things up in such a way that if we have the nice thing, all these other people get screwed over. And like, there's obviously ways to make exceptions to copyrights for libraries and also help take care of those people, uh, make sure that artists can get paid as well um, if we're doing this under the current system or whatever, but like that tension between these two things, the fact that we've set things up in such a way that we have the ability to do this amazing thing, but because of the game rules that we're obsessed with continuing, that potential gets blocked by all sorts of things and like human concern for the people doing this work is one of them. But it's, it's also worth noting that with the way the copyright system is set up is not actually to the benefit of artists right now. You talk to your average artists and ask them how they're doing financially. They're not going to be like, oh, thank goodness for this copyright. It's really filling my pockets right now. There's a very small amount of people who make it under this system as artists financially. And it's not copyright that helps them do that. Copyright overall is something that tends to benefit, you know, big corporations, which amalgamate the rights to content and middlemen, managers, copyright lawyers. There's all these sort of like insiders who 
benefit from and financially profit from the sort of like copyright monopoly system far and ahead above the way that artists do across the board you know your per capita average artist income and your per capita average copyright lawyer income it's a pretty telling story about the way the system works yeah that's the way it happens with a lot of stuff like that it's like oh if you oppose the new amazon headquarters like what about all those jobs for those poor people who need jobs like a you know everyone needs a job and they would have made so many $15 an hour jobs if you'd let this go through. It's like, well, that's not what I'm against. I'm against all the people at the top who are like making the real money here. But the conversation has to get switched to the people at the bottom who the people at the top point to to say, hey, you can't screw us over here at the top because all these people at the bottom are dependent on us because that's how we've set things up. Yeah, it's like this weird social concern washing that you see from these like really rapacious capitalist enterprises who are just exploiting everyone. Like their whole business model is built on the exploitation of artists. But then as soon as like artists and consumers start listening to music for free, they're like, oh, no, the, the artists, we have to protect them. And it's like, well, you didn't protect them in decades of contracts. You didn't protect them when you were making deals with them. You didn't protect them when you set up the system to exploit them, not pay most of them, except for a very small amount of them, which you overpay way too much, where they actually kind of stop working, or at least they stop doing anything worth listening to. We need a better, more reliable way to pay artists over time and to make art something that's a valued part of our life that people are given time for, that they can be compensated for in an organized way. Like there's a bigger concern here than just you know, Napster or the copyright system. And fundamentally, you know, we need to address poverty as a real concern, poverty that affects artists or non-artists. I see it as very related. Yeah. And like, we can have those conversations, but I think in order to have those conversations, there has to be like a general understanding of what is being missed out on by not having this thing, by not having this universal life, because like people frame it as, oh, you want to steal from artists just so that you can get books without paying for them, or you just love to watch things without paying for it because you are morally deficient in some way and don't like to earn what you get or whatever. Like that becomes the conversation rather than, no, we're holding back one of the greatest potentials of information, freedom, and in human history because of how we've set things up and because we've set up these antagonistic relationships between the people who make things and the people who want to look and absorb the things they make. Like people don't write books or make music or make movies or TV shows, anything because they don't want people to see it. They want as many people to see it as possible. And yes, most of the time they want people to pay for it so that they can get paid because that's how the current system works. But like, that's secondary. That's because of the game rules. What they actually want is for that thing that they made to get out there into the world as far as it can go. So it's such an artificial construct to have things set up the way that we currently do, where those things are pitted against each other. But yeah, the actual potential of this library app portal that you can carry around with you or is on your home computer, it's a website, it's an app, it's just, it's the one big information library that you can access from any way that is convenient to you. It's just so huge. And it's even bigger than like, 
oh, every TV show is available or every book is available. Like you can have systems of layers of this kind of information. It's like if you want to check out all the trailers for a movie or like the best clips for a movie, like currently sometimes that stuff is on YouTube, sometimes it's not, but like even each piece of media itself would have ability to have all these pieces of submedia. It's like, what's the Coles notes on this book? I, I want to read the summary of this book that is about one third as long. So it's like really in depth. It gets most of the stuff, but it streamlines it. Or I want to read the two paragraph summary. Like there's ways in which a really well formatted library could invite you to engage with all of the different content that humans have created throughout history on the level that you want to engage with it at that moment. Like if you want to have a quick skim through a certain topic, there's like easy ways to do that. And there's ways to see things that are linked, like everything that you can look at DOS Capital and find every book or essay or summary that's been written of DOS Capital and find the different perspectives on it, find the different ways in which people have interpreted and summarized it. That can all be just as easily accessible as the core text itself. And it can all be linked together and presented in a way so that it's easy to engage with these things at the level that you want to engage with them. And it invites going deeper if that's what you want to do, or it invites just skimming across the top of a whole bunch of different things. All of that potential is available and can be folded into this one universal library because library is not just about having every book or having everything. It's about making it accessible to people and making what's inside of it accessible to people in a way that's relevant to them. When you think about the benefits of curation done by like librarians or uh, library assistants helping people to get the book that they want or the type of book that they're looking for, those types of dynamics. And I think in an ideal utopian system, you'd want to be able to sort of like get the aid and help of an individual, um, or like one-on-one -on -one attention around what you're looking for, ideally. But you could also set up systems that, you know, the same way that Wikipedia pages are structured or other things like where you have these collaborative environments, like you could have collaborative environments for librarian style curation that are able to be developed over time. And basically like the curation work of librarians can be something that is given institutional form that you can access the help of librarians without those librarians being present, or maybe even after those librarians are long dead and gone. That seems to me like a really utopian potential of when we open up the copyright sphere to the free development of digital libraries. The potential seems really, really staggering to me um, in terms of the ways that information could be structured to be accessible to more people and to make sure that people have access to the information that they want or need when they need it. And I mean, we're proposing this as artists, you know, and artists, we need to get paid under this system, but we also need access to art and the, the access to art and the access to culture, that access to thriving, you know, like we might get a situation where there's not as many Metallicas who become like mega millionaires over their rock and roll music anymore. But you might also get more bands that are created from all the inspiration, from all the access to information and access to culture might spark that joy within more people and then produce more good music as a result of it. So even as a fan of Metallica, you can appreciate how access to Metallica might create more music like Metallica in the future. And it really does... And I think this is an important part to underline. 
this proposal doesn't just make everyone in the world richer. It makes us all richer than rich. It makes us all richer than the richest people on the planet right now. Let me explain. The richest people on the planet right now don't have access to everything, and they never will. There's books that have never been digitized. There's books that are not accessible. There's books that cost a lot of money even to look at right now. There's material right now that even if you're rich, you can't really access. But if you created a process of amalgamating and bringing together all the information and having everyone participate in it and putting the stuff all in the pot in one place and having it be that if you have access to something, you have the right to distribute it this way digitally to the cultural fountain, it will make everyone in the world richer than rich. More, you, You'd have access to materials that you just never would, even if you're the one billionaire on a planet full of poor people. You would still not have access to some of the materials that this library would have. So this is a proposal to make everyone on the planet Earth incomparably and indescribably richer. That's what the Universal Library is. Yeah, because it's not even just about the one thing. It's about all of it together. Like, even if you were so rich and you made it your mission to get these rarest texts or whatever that you love, it's still not the same thing of having it all together, accessible in one place where you don't have to spend $100 million to... Or 10 years searching. Yeah, or whatever. You can just breeze by, control F something, and then just breeze out, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's all there. <laughs> That's the rarest text on Earth. That would, Under the capitalist system, that would have cost you $10 million to control F. We now go to a copyright lawyer waking up from a coma in a future library society. Dad, Dad, you're, son, you're awake. Son, oh, he must have dozed off. Are we in the living room? What's son? You're in the hospital, Dad. Just don't, don't sit up. You, you've don't just tell been in me a coma. not to sit. I gotta sit up. Okay, a coma? No, that doesn't. Dad, you've been in a coma for fifteen years. Fifteen. I need to get my clients have Dad, legal proceedings Dad, to attend. Dad, to, uh, um, that's all fifteen years ago. You were at a retreat with other copyright lawyers trying to figure out more ways to get more money without producing anything. Oh yeah, I had such a good presentation, PowerPoint and everything. You were basically trying to make the copyright process more onerous. Yeah, we squashed the pirates, that's right. Exactly, squashed the pirates with bureaucracy, creating these Byzantine systems of copyright that only a select few can interpret, which must be paid at a high rate. And yeah. oh, 15 years, I wonder how my field has developed and all the new ways we've found to keep things from people unless they pay us. Yeah, there must be such amazing new frontiers and Byzantine restrictions. <laughs> um, sorry, I laugh when I'm nervous. But what happened was, kind of in a twist of fate, there was a big plane, like a big jet plane. But the schematics for it were copyrighted under intellectual property. Only select technicians were allowed to work on it or even understand how it works. Uh, and it was only seen by one technician. It couldn't be double-checked. Uh, and he messed up. And what happened was the jet fell off because of intellectual property restrictions, making people not able to analyze and look at their own jets. And that jet engine landed on the ski resort cabin that you and a few of your other copyright lawyer friends were staying most of them died you were in a coma so that's uh, how we got here i don't know if that rings a bell like maybe a big explosion or something like that or maybe that's all wiped. Uh, no no it's all gone that, if you remembered it'd be kind of cool but the price of freedom i guess what you're describing there a necessary consequence of making sure people get paid 
This is all so much to take in. I don't, yeah, maybe I, don't wanna, I need to relax. I don't want to overload any... you right now. Hey, did they ever finish that popular TV show I always was watching at the time? What? Oh, my yeah. Netflix password's probably expired by now. But no, don't can... worry about it. Here, I'll put on for you. The, I don't uh... want to use your Netflix password. I pay for my own media. Please. I must still have money in a bank don't, account. I, I don't. It's almost too much to get into. You're already pretty overwhelmed. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Your profession has been abolished by a movement to change the present state of things. A political movement that abolished intellectual property as we know it. And while it still exists in some limited forms, in terms of the practical and the user end, we have access to everything right now, including many things that were never available under the previous intellectual property system. So I know that's a little bit tough because you're an intellectual property lawyer, so but... you're saying that the pirates won? That yeah, they've the, overrun society? Well, the, Everything is plundered and up for grabs and there's no rules and everyone who creates something, they can just take it from them and spit in their face and not get paid and... It's horrible. I don't even want to see the end of the popular TV show now. No, let's just have you watch... The, this is why I didn't want to get into it. It's The artists actually do get paid, but not that way anymore. The popular TV show that you've always watched, I mean... If you watch through the whole thing, in some of the later seasons of the show, they will directly approach themes that are heavily tied to the transformation that's happened in society, because it was such a transformative thing. It, it was reflected in the media of the time, obviously. Uh, my whole life, every bit of work I've ever done to keep the fences up, and they're all down now. It's horrifying. Horrifying. It's And also, I mean, there is some legal jobs that relate to some of your experience to navigate the ins and outs of some bureaucratic structure set up for our current system of property relations, which we could talk about later, for sure. So are you saying there's just one password for Netflix and everybody gets it, or one password for Hulu, and then anyone can go to any of these different sites and enter... Or maybe they don't even have a password anymore on no, the different no, no, sites. No, no, Dad, they... they um... For, for now, let's just say yes. They do have one password. If that, I think that might just be an easier. If you, you can think of it as having like one password. Well, what is it? What's the password? It's it's more of a series of gestures. Ah, oh, that's too confusing for me. I don't. Know. I don't want to overwhelm you. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. You need to just want like just relax. You've been in a coma for 15 years, and you're getting a crash course in how. Society can change very quickly uh, when there's a need, especially in a climate crisis. But I don't want to explain all of that very fast in a way that makes you overwhelmed or sad because you need to heal. Here, you're, you're probably hungry. I'm going to call the staff here. We're going to get you some hospital food. Cheer you right up. I don't want hospital food. <laughs> Dad, oh, I forgot. To, no, one of the things that changed, hospital food is good now, Dad. Better than restaurant food. All the world's best chefs want to cook in hospitals to help heal the sick. Maybe I'll just keep this tube down my throat and I won't eat anything. Okay, <laughs> I don't want to overwhelm you. So if the two, if you're happy with the tube drip, I'm not happy with any of this. I just want to go back to that retreat and finish my presentation, and then come home to thank you messages on my answering machine from all the executives who call me to say, "Oh, you saved me so much money. You've prevented." these small group of artists from making a new Mickey Mouse cartoon. You've you've done all these amazing things, and thank you, thank you, thank you. Do we still have that old answering machine? I, uh, we, we can look, we'll look, we'll look for you, Dad. We'll, we'll try to find if... Okay, go away. I'll watch the show.
Oh, don't worry about it. He'll adjust. It's you just woke up. I see you're upset, but it's yeah. okay. I just want him to understand that he's like he's richer than rich. Once he uses the library app, who, who's gonna miss Hulu and Netflix? Nobody. Oh, I wish I had more weird named things to log into. Find one fraction of the. Things oh, my I one wanna... favorite artist isn't on Spotify. Guess I better go find where they are. I'm spending two hundred dollars a month for all my various subscriptions. And that was a copyright lawyer waking up from a coma during the transitionary period to a library socialist future. So it's the future. We live under fully luxurious degrowth library socialism, you know, 10,000 years of world peace. You look down at your smartphone, which, yes, we do still have. And the, the first app is the Universal Library app, which we went over. And there's another app right next to it. Its logo is a little like a U. It stands for Usufruct. And this is the second utopian library socialist app, the app of the future, a platform of freedom. It's interesting because the first app, the Universal Library app, is actually really different from libraries as they currently exist in that it's not so much about physical items, it's about digital items only. It's, it's about things that can be infinitely reproduced through bits, ones and zeros, control C, control V. Tiny little switchboards on your computer flipping back and forth in certain ways creating the latent ebooks that were always a potentiality within that computer surface. But there's another major part of library socialism that we've talked about a lot, which is not just media, not just books and things should be handled through this type of library system, but all items, because having shared property that you can use and benefit from but not destroy and that other people can use and benefit from if you no longer need it creates a type of abundance in the same way that current libraries create a type of abundance by lending the same library book out for the use and benefit of whoever rents it out for the period of time that they get it or whatever um and so in a library socialist future, obviously not everything's going to be digital unless we've just covered the planet with computer and all uploaded ourselves or whatever. But that's probably... I'm not in favor. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not my perfect future. In my perfect future, we're still physical beings, and so we still have physical needs and enjoy physical items of various kinds to, to meet our various needs. Hashtag and so- keep the flesh. And so increasingly relevant for the next couple hundred (laughs) years, keep the flesh hashtag. And so having a system for sharing those physical items with one another through usufructian property rights would also have to be a major part of a library socialist future. And I think a usufruct app could really help facilitate that kind of thing. Oh, you need a new coffee table because you're rearranging your living room and like, oh, this coffee, it doesn't quite fit. I need a shorter one. Open up the app. You say coffee table available. I want this coffee table. And it, however it works, helps facilitate you getting what you need and other people then being able to use the coffee table that you no longer want to use yourself. Right. And so the vision of this sort of usufruct app here is that Similar to the sort of free section on Craigslist, or you have like a local swapping group where people are putting things up 
to give away to each other at the best end or sometimes trade or sell. Um, all, all that user experience, which is pretty useful sometimes, being able to search your neighborhood for things that people are getting rid of that you want. It's a great like innovation. They used to do it in the newspaper or posting things on like posts, having garage sales and, and whatnot. Yep. But now you can just have like this ongoing slow motion garage sale, selling one thing at a time, posting it whenever you want. Like that represents a new sort of frontier of this connected social swapping of earlier generations when people would post newspaper ads or something like that. And we're proposing another step further, which is to institutionalize the free store of the internet and to do so that's connected to an understanding of an alternate and new property relationship where and so, so this is sort of the vision you know when you're moving and there's something that you can't like move to your new house or you don't want to move to your new house and so you want to sell it or you want to give it away and you have to like figure out all these logistics and if you're trying to sell it maybe it's it's worth something and you know you need money if you give it away to some random person, it might be some person who's just taking it to sell it because they know that it's worth something. So there's all these weird complex things around in that environment. And, and for me, having been in that situation, I was thinking it'd be so nice to just, if there was some way I could give this to an organized institutional framework where this couch, I don't need any money for it as long as it's marked for the people indefinitely like this this couch now belongs to people who need couches and when they get rid of it they're going to give it back to the next person and maybe someone's going to reupholster it eventually when it needs it but it's always going to get passed on to the next person and that's really what i would want for it if i could pick anything to get rid of this couch it's not to get the 300 dollars i think it's worth maybe it's to give it away to someone who needs it but then are, are they going to end up destroying it at the end what happens at the end of it are they just going to give it away to some random person i want to have faith in the trajectory of this item. I want to sign over this item from my possession into the lineage of library society to make this item now something that can be shared by all for as long as it exists. Yeah, because like a big part of the problem with the current solutions for this kind of stuff, like the Craigslist free section, or you go on Facebook marketplace to see what people are selling or giving away is that there's like, or Kijiji is a big one here in Canada. There's there's all these barriers to participating in this kind of system, like making the post, where do I post it? How much do I ask for? And then dealing with different offers or coordinating with the person who might come and pick it up. And the, and it's like, do I want to do all that for selling this thing for $50? Or, you know, I shouldn't, but ooh, it's so tempting. There's that dumpster right there. And if I just threw it in the dumpster, I never have to think about it again, ever. Like, it's just gone from my life. Maybe I'll even leave it outside the dumpster, and if someone grabs it from there, that's that's great. That'll, you know, someone will probably just throw it into the dumpster for me, but at least in my head, maybe someone took it. So um, Yeah, my, my great aunt gave me this milkshake machine for Christmas and like, God bless her, but I've never used it. And like, who really has that many milkshakes? Like, I don't need milkshakes that often to have a milkshake <laughs> machine. So it's just in my closet because I'm sort of embarrassed of it. And I don't know what to do with yeah, it. You don't want to have a milkshake machine on your counter and like, hey, I'm the milkshake machine. <laughs> want milkshakes again? <laughs> no, no, we're good. Okay, well, just don't forget. You can ask if you want them. Yeah, we okay, we know. Uh, yeah, the system puts all this individual responsibility on people to 
shepherd their items that they purchased and are theirs and that they have control over now into the future in some way. And like, it's a huge pain in the ass to deal with all these items all the time. And when you don't need an item anymore, like you don't want it, you don't want to think about it. You just like, get this item out of here. Mm-hmm. Like, you can imagine the anxious, the anxious person. They're walking to go meet the stranger. They're just walking by like dumpster after dumpster calling to them. Just like, you don't have to talk to anyone. Just a big open, open dumpster maw. Just like, feed me. Put the perfectly good but functionally useless to you item in here. Um, yeah, that's the incentives of the current system that we have set up. And then like, yeah, it's like we can shame people for not wanting to do the right thing every time or we could set up institutions that make it easier to do the right thing than to do the wrong thing because that's when i think you're going to get the vast majority of people doing the right thing like you would have to be some weird antagonistic like if it was easier to throw something up onto the usufruct app than to uh throw it in the garbage because we've made throwing out good things difficult and so i don't know how to do that but just thinking about it from an incentives perspective, there's that. But then from like also a user experience perspective, anytime you need something, it's in the app. Like you don't have to buy things necessarily most of the time. Like depending how expanded this is and how many people are on it and what's available and how. Let's how, talk about how, the utopian end. What's it like when one of the projects finished? You know, it's like you really have everything you need on there at any given time pretty much so it's like i need this shorter coffee table i already in my app the current coffee table i have is in there because i got it from the app in the first place you swipe it over to don't need this anymore you look through the other app uh, the other coffee tables find the one you want swipe that one pick the 15 minute window in which you want it delivered and switched you know it's like (laughs) You don't have to wait around all afternoon or anything or worried. It's a 15-minute window. You know exactly when they're coming. People come by, grab the one coffee table, give you the other coffee table, and you're done. Easy. Yeah, and it can all be done zero touch. It's all like out on your front lawn. You just like bring the old table out there. You're like, okay, they're going to be here between 3 and 3.15 because this is really optimized. We planned it a couple days in advance. I'm just going to go back inside, going to have a drink of water, and we're going to go return to my new coffee table. Hey, that was a lot easier than throwing out that coffee table because, and it was all like, I mean, obviously you can say hi to the people and, and that's nice. <laughs> yeah, it's allowed, but you don't have to. But we're just thinking, you know, we, we want to make sure that everyone feels welcome using this, that everyone is able to have a user experience that really works for them, that, that can compete with throwing away things or can c- compete with selling things in terms of how pleasant and beneficial it is. And again, this is a proposal I think that can make people richer than rich in a way because. It can offer the users a couple types of freedom. Like one of is being free of the burden of having to dispose of things which are good in a society which storage is expensive. That's storage is more expensive than throwing things out that are perfectly good. <laughs> like so, you're as relieved of that ethical world as you want to be because you can just give perfectly good things onto the system, which then makes sure that it's accessible to someone. But it also makes you free to like try out a couch and then you don't like it and then just swap it for another couch and it's all hunky-dory it's not ending up in a landfill there's no guilt involved it's all just a system of like trading and mutually helping each other and that seems to me like another type of just like freedom that would be really satisfying to live with and would be very weird to leave once you were used to it yeah because like uh, even if you're a rich person now like 
sure, you could just go online shopping and buy all new furniture for your place or whatever, and then have the help swap it out for you. And it's kind of that easy, like depending how rich you are, obviously, but you still have that thing of like, oh, did I overpay for this? Or are the help trying to take advantage of my money? I don't want to be hemorrhaging my millions because then I won't stay a millionaire. I have to be frugal with it. And like, there's all these extra concerns of like how to not get taken advantage of in a system that is about differential advantage between people and gaming each other in this system of like how do i get the best win for myself out of every interaction but in a a usufructian property system or like mediated through this app the whole thing is set up for mutual benefit inherently so you don't have to worry about whether you're you've spent too much on your new furniture set or you uh, got you know taken advantage of for like shoddy craftsmanship on this table that looks cool but actually isn't like useful in these certain ways or whatever and then oh i can't uh, the moment i took this new car off the lot it's worth ten thousand less dollars than it was before just because it's not technically brand new anymore all these weird considerations of like non-material things that affect monetary considerations on all of this stuff is just gone and that's a type of freedom that like again nobody has right now no matter who you are really yeah you can be the richest person in the world but you're still gonna sort of wonder a little bit or think about just to be cautious whether or not the person selling you this dishwasher is selling you a lemon of a dishwasher and scamming you and it's not gonna is they don't even live at this house and you're not gonna be able to find them or whatever you know like that's gonna exist in the back of your mind even if you're a billionaire buying something off of craigslist or whatever yeah even if you're a billionaire it might be more like oh is the person who buys my dishwashers for me savvy enough to know whether they're because if they get taken (laughs) advantage of all the time because they don't care about my money then that could cost me an extra hundreds of thousands a year i need to make sure the person who buys my things for me is on the money or like all those concerns gone because the system isn't about like it doesn't incentivize dishwasher purveyors to lie to you about how well dishwashers work or like dishwasher builders to cut corners to make more profit on their dishwashers. All of those incentives, when you take the purchasing profit market aspects out of it, disappear. Yeah. Just imagining what it would be like to have a society that was structured from production on with this sort of library system in mind, like it exists to recycle what already exists effectively and introduce new things to it that are like meeting the demands that are making on the system. You could imagine an algorithmic sort of system like this of, of keeping track of all these items and where they are and, and who's got what on loan and stuff like that. Um, you could imagine that developing into sort of like a decentralized planned economy rather than a like we want to get really utopian about the long term, like systems based on need and distribution that are social like this and production that are social like this the sort of back end of this the tracking system that'd be required to yeah decommodify all these goods that process could eventually be producing outputs that help make decisions about production and so on it's a fascinating like long-term potential development that i could see coming out of this sort of arrangement Because, yeah, this is ultimately like a social arrangement. Like you could have the same basic arrangement without an app. And people have in past generations, you know, had property relationships that were more 
share, even within the household, we have some of these shared relationships with people who are close to us. But it, it's interesting to think of what scales of potentials are opened by institutionalizing it and institutionalizing the free store, the free trading post, and in giving people the option to you know, liberate the goods that they've purchased from the world of being things that can be bought and sold. Like, it's almost like freeing the genie, you know? It's like you get property and then you you free the genie. It's like using the last wish for the genie to be free. It's like the last thing I do with my property is I cast it out to the people and whoever needs a table may have one. Yeah, I, yeah. And I love the idea of this as a way to like start transitioning property from one system to the other. And like thinking about starting this system currently from where we are, there's a lot of interesting questions of like, okay, how is this structured in our current legal environment? Who technically owns these items on paper? And like all of those kinds of things. But I think there's also like really interesting potential answers to those questions. Like if we in a capitalist society had a usufruct app that people could use to liberate items into this collectively shared thing you would want to make sure that the app isn't just owned by some hierarchical corporation but maybe by a cooperative of some kind where everybody who's contributed to the app and uses the app gets some say in how the collectively owned property is utilized so that it doesn't end up engaging with the capitalist incentives in some way that is negative for the user base. It's a democratic organization uh, that can like grow, grow both all the amount of items and property that it has and people participating in it, but just grow experience and awareness of these different ways of relating to items and to each other via our items. So yeah, that's that's our utopian vision, right? That's where this could go. That's what these apps could be for humanity. We could change our relationship to property. We could change our relationship to information. We could strengthen ties between us, and we could begin to prefigure a world that that is post-private property, begin to prefigure a world that is post-capitalist, create spaces of information commons and create spaces of physical commons you know, governed by principles like Eleanor Ostrom talks about to be effective and cultivate a growing information and property commons that helps liberate people in the moment, make them richer than rich, and help us transition to a society uh, that works for everyone instead of just a few. Today's episode of the Seriously Wrong Podcast is brought to you by the abolition of the dumpster. Oh, I still remember that day so clearly. I was walking down the street and they're loading up all the big, dirty, stinky dumpsters onto a truck to take them away. And I'm just a kid and I ask, hey, what are you guys doing with these dumpsters? What are we going to do with our trash now? And they're, oh, you got to sort it. You can't just dump anymore. It's a political change. These receptacles are being brought to the receptacle library to be cleaned, washed out, and lent out to people in need for non-dumpstering purposes. Made a lot of sense to me. For me, growing up really just a few years younger than you, I didn't remember dumpsters at all. It never made sense to me that there was just one place where you would just put things that you didn't want anymore that meant that they were going to a dump. 
but growing up I did have family members who would think back fondly on how they used to love throwing away paper cups and how they wished that they could remove the plastic packaging from their items and put it in a plastic bag and then walk out of the building that they were in and throw that plastic bag into a dumpster. It was a weird ritual I guess people had fond memories of. You just throw it into the dumpster and it was like, oh, oof, it's gone now and I don't have it anymore. The playground down the house where I grew up had playground structures made from old dumpsters that had been repainted. There was slides coming down them and little uh, ladders up the side and whatnot. But it was all recycled dumpster. Recycled I dumpster. That. Yeah. Yeah. Good memories of the. Yeah. Crazy bit of history there. That end of trash cans. The end of the dumpster. Important step along the way. Sponsor of this episode. Steps along the way can sponsor episodes. Excuse me, who said a step can't sponsor? Uh, okay, yeah, back to the show. So yeah, it's a beautiful library app utopian future we've just described. Right, and both of these things, as we said before, it's not the app. Apps facilitate certain things. The social, digital communications technology can help facilitate these things, but these are social relationships we're talking about that can exist without these apps, but in the technological realm, they can be hyper-powered and institutionalized to a point that can make us all kind of richer than rich. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, all apps are really is finding novel, useful ways to present information, images, text, pixels, etc. in a way that matches what you want in that. It's all information management tools and managing information, interacting with other people in a sort of social way. And that's like institutions. So like, it's a weird thing to say, but apps are kind of like institutions or portals to institutions. Some apps are obviously really small little things. It's not just about, oh, a new cool app or whatever. We're talking about social institutions like as the basis of society. So it's just, yeah, it's a bigger thing than like a solitaire app or whatever. Although a solitaire app does sound great. Love solitaire, especially when it has all the different kinds and you can oh, pick which rules. Oh, yeah. No, I meant like spider solitaire. Or oh, like the, I thought you meant uh, all the different kinds like Paris, like <laughs> a spider, like stars, suns. You can upload your own JPEG. Oh, it's my grandkids are on the solitaire deck. It's like weirdly cropped image. Or maybe <laughs> yeah, in the future it won't be like weirdly it. cropped anymore. <laughs> AI will know how to crop it right. Uh, but these social relationships that we'd like to become sort of the leading social relations of a society that can be ecological, directly democratic, not overshoot the ecological limits of the planet, and which can make every voice matter, make sure that things are distributed according to need and so on. These proposals, the online library and the use of Fructian sort of gift economy app and system, we've presented sort of a utopian vision, but I think these are also very practical ideas that we can start doing political agitation towards that future right Right now, using a combination between political advocacy to you know legal and political institutions and common sense, but also by prefiguring through a mixture between legal and illegal direct action in the spirit of library socialism. So that's what we wanted to talk about here at the end. Yeah, because when you think about like a universal media library that has all books, articles, TV, movie, music, all human art and intellectual edifice, etc. To some extent that already exists, it's just inaccessible to people and it's sporadic and broken apart into different pieces. And like, you know, most TV shows that have ever existed are available online. They're just behind various paywalls or they're up on YouTube in crappy quality 
quality from like VHS copies. Some random person uploaded them. Most things are out there, but it's not centralized into one place. But there are direct action efforts underway already to, first of all, bring those things to people through torrent sites or streaming sites like put lockers and one, two, three video or like all those different kinds of places you can go to get various media exist. But then there's also the higher level efforts being made to combine those things into one place. There's plugins for Kodi, which is a media streaming app. They're trying to be legit, but you can get these like quasi legit plugins to it that give you access to every TV show ever through these put locker sites and stuff. And sometimes you have to click through 10 links before one works and it's not the best UI, but people are already trying to build this one thing that has everything because it's what this technology makes possible. So to not realize it, I think a lot of people notice how fucked up that is to not do it. But I do think it's important to think about that kind of stuff as direct action, like political prefigurative work in this sphere. Another piece of this, I think, on the online library front is pushing this common sense by asking questions of people that highlight the contradictions of the copyright system. Talk about how artists do or do not get paid in ways that confound these narratives. And also connecting with people who are already engaging in the act of what's called piracy in our society, typically, and reframing it to them as an act of being a library patron and how there is not a digital exemption for digital libraries, even though it's to the benefit of humanity to do so. And in the spirit of libraries, that's something we can push in the common sense realm to people who are already doing it. But that's also that's part of the reason why us individually doing this direct action, skipping Spotify and going instead to the torrents as a political statement. That's something that's good and beneficial for us to do in the way that it enriches our lives, in the way that many of us already do this and have done this for a long time in a variety of ways. But we should also try to teach other people how to do the same thing. We should teach people who don't know how to share their passwords how to share passwords. We need to work together as individual people who are turned into customers by this lack of library environment. And we need to band together to come up with strategies together to outthink these institutions so we can provide more abundance amongst ourselves than they're willing to give us by their restrictive systems, which aren't made for us. By training others, we give them the, the life experience of the normalcy of participating in an information culture like this. And we help shift common sense over time to the point where we can see legal and political changes that affect the way we handle digital libraries in society. I feel like one way that even something you said a few years ago really shifted my common sense on this, which was just make online libraries legal rather than piracy is good, actually, and pirates are cool. And like, I like that framing too, but like make online libraries legal really just puts a point on it that like what's actually happened here is that in this new space, we've created more restrictive rules than exist in the real world. In the physical world, libraries are allowed. Online, they're not allowed. Like making online libraries legal, people like libraries, they should be allowed to be online and be legal too. It's great common sense. So I think on the online libraries front, it's a combination between that direct action, that institutional direct action of producing new frontiers of ways of sharing, and also training one another and building this common sense about how it's normal, and then finding the right ways of making the argument in public to legal and political authorities, and to most importantly, people, regular people, that this is a system when it comes to intellectual property, which is to the benefit of the majority of people, and it's an injustice that we don't have it. I think those combinations of things 
things could really move the needle on this if there was a concerted effort. And once we get the library exemption for copyright, then we can move on to stretch goals, like really addressing the issues with intellectual property across the board and looking at what sort of intellectual property system is fair and useful for a just society when we face things like a climate crisis or we face other existential threats. How much of these ideas can really be owned? How can you own the idea of a dead man? I'm allowed to tell stories about Luke Skywalker. You are not allowed. That's the law. You try to tell your Luke Skywalker story out on the market? No, 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 no. <laughs> Cops come and get at you. It is fucked up when you think about it that way, that like you get to own this character that is everybody's now. Like Right, and it's not even like George Lucas owns it. He's like, uh, I'll just sell it to the largest media corporation. And they're right. like, yeah, Luke Skywalker is our idea now at Disney Corporation. We we purchased it. It's But even if George Lucas did still own it, at this point, Star Wars is so big. Like everybody, I don't know, I wonder how many of the 8 billion people on the world know the name Luke Skywalker. Like it's maybe not a majority, but it's going to be a lot. It's like, it can't be his anymore. Even if he, like, it doesn't make sense. It's it's our story. It's the it's humanities. The fight for library socialism is the fight for the liberation of Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. Yeah, Mickey Mouse. Every character should be. Oh, kids, people. you gotta free me. I'm being held against my will. I'm being forced to produce content. I want to be given to the children of the world. They make me wear these gloves, these humiliating gloves. This is based on minstrel shows, kids. That's a parody. I'm Legal not a parody. parody. I'm the real Mickey Mouse. No, you're not. This is parody, goddammit. No, free Put me. Put him back in the cage. You tell the nice people this was parody. It was parody. Let me, I don't want to go in the cage. Ah, uh, we tricked you. You're going back in the cage anyway. <laughs> So that's what it's like right now. <laughs> and this is what it could be like. Oh, I'm free! Hooray! Everyone can tell stories about me. It's it's totally allowed. Here's the story of the time I went to a brothel. That's what the air pirates were like. They did the Mouse Liberation Front. I've been trying to get the guy who did, he did this like, he was sued by Disney for like millions of dollars right. with for doing these like body Mickey Mouse comics. <laughs> Um, and he's been sending us some of his more recent comics, but we haven't yet been able to get him on the show. Uh, but yeah, we got on his email mailing list, but not the, <laughs> not on the show. Oh, that was a great parody segment, but the featuring a parody of Mickey Mouse. Oh, what the hell this is behind the paywall? That was Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come and get us motherfuckers. And so the other utopian idea we're talking about is the use of Fructian property app, the place where you can commit your goods into the public sphere, where they can be repaired and recirculated as part of a social abundance, as long as they have a life cycle. And maybe even if they're breaking in different parts, those parts can be replaced and their life cycle can continue because we value as library socialists when something has been commissioned from raw materials that it should not be put into a pile to rot. And the potential for starting this kind of thing also already exists. Like we started out that segment talking about Facebook, Marketplace, Craigslist, Kijiji, all these ways that people within the current system have found to try to satisfy this impulse that we have to not destroy things that are useful still. It's a weird thing to call that a type of direct action, but in a way it is to like put in that extra effort is a type of direct action against the system as it currently exists exists but like that can be expanded out bringing these disparate elements together the free stores the tool libraries the craigslists and start connecting them together in systems that make sense 
like even if there was like one listing app place you could go to to see all the different free listings in your area from all the different disparate places and the local tool libraries whatever place that sometimes gives stuff away for free like cataloging all that together showing it to people that could be one step in that direction but then also we can start building like sort of property collectives where we more explicitly do this and try to build legal structures where stuff that is in this system is owned by the democratic organization and there's contract and legal structure set up to even within this system have this little oasis of usufructian property rights because there are ways to do that like in our current system when you rent a house from a landlord or an apartment from a landlord you're renting usufructian property rights from the landlord you can use it you can get benefit from it but you can't destroy it or they charge you money or whatever so the whole idea of usufruct, the term, comes from legal property theory, that there's these three elements of... So there's ways to start building legal edifices of shared usufructian relationships that people could opt into in the current system and start defining those laws and contracts and relationships and stuff from within the current framework with an eye to changing the whole thing and how it works. Yeah, and the, the uses fructus and abuses thing, that actually comes originally from Roman property law. I've just been reading the Dawn of Everything, the Graeber and Wengro book. They mentioned that abuses is unseen elsewhere in other cultures. It's, a, it's an aberration from regular understandings of property, in particular in the Roman context. They're like, yeah, we got a right to destroy what's ours. And they signed off on that. Right. And this is a time during like slavery. And so it's an interesting historical context that maybe maybe we do want to drop that abuses thing and try to rescue what's awesome about the past and then bring it into this technological sphere and start experimenting with the processes that can create usufructian property sphere where things are shared amongst people. On how to get there, one can imagine a route where people who are involved in the development of user experiences and technology can sort of make developmental pushes in this direction and try different things out of different interfaces and different tracking systems and sort of think of this as an intellectual project on one end. I think another thing that might be beneficial to do in the present in terms of direct action is get together with friends who are like-minded about this type of thing and try to like create small-scale organizations that can do some property shifting according to rules like this, have agreements with people about the sacrifice of these objects from the realm of my personal property, which I have the right to destroy, and to just give up the right to destroy that dresser, cast it out to the group of people that could grow over time. And there's different ways you could organize this. So like one thing that is going to come up a lot is trust and whether people like run off with things or another issue is that maybe there's things that no one wants and then you have these things that none of you want and then you have a, need a place to store it. I think both these issues can be solved with things like uh, membership dues, having accountable structures to like put money together is part of trust building. And like there's a real threat that if you get kicked out, you lose your money, you lose your access to these things or something like that. Ideally, you wouldn't want to just kick people out over nothing, but you'd have like a graduated system of sanctions like Ostrom talks about for violating the rules that are agreed upon. But you could start at the small level, even as a small group of people, and then have modest membership dues and then use those modest membership dues to facilitate the base level trust network when new people are coming into it, because this is something that benefits from having more people in it, because it's more likely that someone's going to need it if you're able to grow it. But it also creates opportunities to say, for example, 
if there's a dresser that no one wants, but maybe like sprucing it up or fixing it or painting it would allow it to be used by someone, then you have options like that because you've got a pool of resources that you can democratically control towards the ends of making the best of everything and making everything have value in society. Yeah, you could even have systems where if you can't afford dues, maybe you can donate work hours to like fixing if you have a bit of mechanical skill or repainting something that needs a new coat of paint on it. There's lots of ways that people could contribute to this system uh, or even like getting things in and out of storage. Like you volunteer a few work hours to help facilitate some of the physical aspects of this kind of thing. I think that there's a lot of interesting ways people could invest time and money into a shared property environment like this that can build trust and give people a sense of investment in what they're doing, set up in a way that feels fair to people and that manages this commons in an effective way, uh, like we're talking about with the principles that Eleanor Ostrom discovered through her study of how people manage common property successfully in the real world. Like we have that information now so we can build it into the system. Yeah. And I think you really can with this sort of stuff start on trust-based arrangements from people like just using existing platforms that exist for connecting with people. You can do a lot on that just base level of trust without institutionalizing. But I think there's a real opportunity to, through structure and understanding of this as a political act, infusing the sort of mentality that to do this is propaganda, that we are trying to enact the world that we want to create. We're trying to prefigure the new and the shell of the old. There's a way to develop our way up this ladder of institutionalization where you're able to sort of work within the rules of the system as it currently exists underneath the capitalist system to build a public consensus, a common sense, a group of people who participate in this and get the bounty of it, who are richer than rich from their participation in it. Uh, and you can sort of develop a trajectory, starting with these small groups up to these larger institutions and cities that have an explicitly political edge about library socialism, about the need for access to information and sharing of property, and can do it out in the world to a very, very high degree. It'll have to be defended against exploitation. It'll have to be defended against people who want to sabotage it. It'll have to be set up to appropriately deal with people who are abusing the system because we do exist in this society where there is that external competition. There is that external incentive sometimes to violate social norms. And that's a problem-solving process over time that requires a lot of minds thinking in a lot of different ways and rooting stuff out. But I see generally with these two app ideas, or, or they're not just app ideas, they're ideas for the ways that law should be changed in society, because I think really the long-term with the usufruct thing is making a usufructian shared property a real sort of legal designation, like to decommodify something and say that it's no longer allowed to be destroyed. I think it's something that should be legally protected the same way that private property is protected. I think we shouldn't have to pretend that the couch is property of some such organization to enforce rights against abuses of it. I see a trajectory involving both these ideas with an explicitly political program being something that can move the needle in people's lives in day-to-day -day life in the modern day and can also put us on a trajectory towards better futures. And I do see the sort of app side, the website side being a big part of what makes it work. Any social institution that doesn't have an app is going to have a really hard time getting traction. Would you go to a bank that doesn't have a banking app if they're just like, no, we don't, we don't have that? You have to come to the bank. We don't have a website either. We just think people spend too much time on their phones these days. <laughs> yeah, so just it's our bank. Line, it's how we do it. Up. <laughs>
you know, you were sitting on the bus, you're looking around on the phone, on the phone, you're like, you're shaking your head. What's happening to our society? That's why you have to come between 12 and 4 p.m. on a weekday. Oh, perfect. You know what? I share those memes of like how sad it is that everyone's looking at their phone on the bus. And I really do find it sad. Sometimes I'm literally crying about how much time people spend on the phones because it's sad. It is sad these days. And it doesn't matter what they're doing on the phones. What matters is that it is on phones. Anyway, so the point there is that like if we want to make a future utopian usufructian property system, it's great to think about the nuts and bolts and how it will work and how to have graduated sanctions and how to monitor the resources we have and the use of resources to make sure there isn't issues of running out of things or people abusing the system, etc. We also need to think about how are people going to interact with this system? What's the UI of the system? And that's what the kind of app idea is. Because if you're selling this to people who aren't necessarily super political people, you have to be able to explain to them how it's going to work in a way that makes sense. And it's like people understand how to give something away on the internet, even if they haven't necessarily done it. You make a post, you could even explain it to an old person. It's like when you used to post a free item in the newspaper, uh, except it's on the internet now. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that. To give people an intuitive understanding of the depth of the possibility here, we have to think about it from both sides, from the nuts and bolts side, but also the UI side and how to make it easy for people and how to help them envision what their life would look like with these apps, with these social institutions and social relationships in them. Like, what would it be like to be in a world that has these things? And I think thinking about the front-facing app version of it, which is how we interact with so many things in the world today, is going to be important for that. I'm imagining telling older people about it, like, we can really make the case to them that the difference between this platform and the other platforms is when you don't really care about getting money for something and you want to give it away, you can guarantee that no one's going to just turn around and sell it right away. You're going to guarantee that it's protected and that it's going to find a home that someone's going to use it. And I think that's, it's not often said out loud, like the reason I'm giving this away for free or whatever is because I want this to not be in the dump. I want this to be used somehow, you know, there's a part of, if you're selling it, you want to get money because you need money for things, but you also want to honor the object into the world, you know, and be like, you're yeah. almost setting up the barrier of the money partially to ensure that someone's buying it who actually wants it and that they're not just taking it to do some nefarious secret thing like right uh, i just had a weird thought but like i wonder how much the people who end up hoarding a lot of physical items would be sated by like it's not just like oh the learning channel crew comes in for their tv show and they're throwing out all your stuff and you're like oh no fuck I, what if i need it and all the things that go through their head but if they're like we're going to give it to someone else who is going to use it. It's not being thrown out. It's not going to waste. It's because I think part of the reason people want to like just keep stuff just in case is because just an innate sense of it's wrong to just throw stuff out that might still be good. I mean, that, that's definitely part of the clutter that I've had in my house over my life has been related to that of just like stuff that either I don't want anymore or I received under some circumstances and I never really wanted filling up space, filling up guilt space, 
avoiding the garbage, probably a decent amount of the time only avoiding the garbage temporarily, just waiting until it's moved enough time that there's enough muscle, there's enough pieces missing that you could no longer argue it's salvageable or that someone would want it. There's a, I was just thinking about food. Sometimes I have leftover food and it's like two days later and I'm like, oh, this is the last day I could eat it, but it doesn't seem appetizing, but... I'll just leave it in the fridge for two more days and then in two days it will be bad and then I won't feel bad about throwing it out. I'm like, oh, I can't eat it anymore, so it's fine. Right, I can't throw it out now because I could still technically eat it. I'll throw it out later. I'm just going to wait until it develops a culture that makes it (laughs) (laughs) not able to eat inside my fridge and then I'll, yeah. I'll keep my old phone that is still technically good, but kind of slow until it's not just a four-year-old phone, but a 10-year-old phone. And then nobody will really want it. And Mm. I can throw it out in six years. Yeah, I can just sit in my drawer until then. (laughs) Yeah. So there's an alternative to that. Wouldn't it be just so nice to be able to put up on the phone, you're like, hey, I got this laptop with a broken screen. I'm pretty sure some of these parts are good. And uh, I don't really know how to wipe all my data off of it, but I'd really like if all the data was off as well. Can you please take this? The technician comes on site, puts a little thing on, like this bad boy is wiped. And then you're like, great. And then you're just like, off you go. And then they take it apart. They rebuild the computer and they loan it out to some grandma. Because it's from 2004, but that's really good for a grandma, what she's going to do. Solitaire. Yeah, solitaire and email. Got it. This is incredible. How many gigabytes RAM does this have? I can upload picture of my grandkids on my solitaire cards. I don't mind. It's a little stretched. (laughs) (laughs) Looks just like them. Thanks, Usufructian property relationship app mediated by the local direct action collective that's been doing uh, digital file swaps in person. That's another cool thing in library socialism, prefigurative praxis and so on. Creating situations to meet up in person and trade information, trade files on like over a LAN network. There's just something that's so cool about that to me. Um, Like if you could create a situation where people could go and share their libraries with each other off their hard drives and stuff like that. I don't know. There's a variety of reasons this doesn't tend to happen in reality, but I love how it's just like it's this new technology and we never really use it that way because the internet is so powerful but it's just an option that you have like i can imagine structuring events that way that help build community where you're like sharing libraries with each other or sharing lossless flacs and so on onto each other's external hard drives yeah like LAN parties for file sharing file sharing and talking about what you're sharing and stuff you could have like a history meetup and everyone brings their external hard drives where they're giving each other documentaries and history books and they're talking about history and that's like that's what a library social history meetup looks like right welcome back everybody to another wrong town history story time segment a story about history in a segment form today we're going to be talking about the abolition of the abuses regime and the start of the usufruct movement now this is a foundational founding moment for usufructia where we all live and the particular history of what happened in wrong town at that time is very interesting Absolutely. It's one of my favorite stories. You know, it's the founding mythos of our society. The story of the rise of Usufructia, which is how I pronounce it. And that is your right. Is also the story of the downfall of the abusive system of property and governance, the old historical order that our current one replaced. But what most people don't know is that way back in the nine days of the past, they didn't actually call the system the abusive system. That's more of a modern categorization. It's how we think about it. In the past, they just called it liberal democracy, capitalism, property ownership. 
certain recreations they'll be like oh we have to fight to protect our abusive system it's all sort of a historic misnomer it's a misunderstanding that's the way it was categorized during the revolution as we'll come to see yeah anachronism in art like that is sometimes necessary to get the point across to modern audiences but as historians we like to point out the difference there yeah so for the, for the purposes of storytelling today we will be using that anachronism although it's technically incorrect exactly in Wrongtown, they had a mayor and a council that was completely committed to the abuses system. You know, they're saying, we need to keep the abuses system. Abuses is freedom. And of course, abuses was the Roman legal property right to destroy the things that you own. They could move physical objects into their legal domain, which gave them the right to destroy it, even if it was perfectly good. To take one of the finite resources commissioned from raw materials from our earth to just destroy it for no reason. And that was the common sense that all of the politicians just 100% believed it. And the funny thing is that at the time when the sort of nascent beginnings of the library future were beginning, a lot of these politicians really just dismissed it. Oh, sure, they'll have their little islands of sharing here, but this is how society works and will always work. And these little pockets of people sharing can never compete with the power of the abuses system. They can try and do little things, but ultimately we'll recuperate everything they're trying to do and plow it back into our system, so it's no threat to us. That's what they thought. And in, in a way, they were right for a while. The starts of these systems, the use of Fructian movement, were just sort of benign little things. Things that just helped neighbors connect to each other, shared food, sharing property using an app interface, local democratic experiments. These types of things, none of them directly challenged the abuses system in any clear way immediately. You know, people around the world were still engaging in abuses all the time. So why would they even think that this would be a threat to them? I mean, at first, it seemed they were right. But what was happening around the world, but in Wrongtown specifically, was a really, really high level of adoption of these principles in people's day-to-day -day lives. They were starting to get used to these new freedoms, the freedom to participate in democratic institutions, the freedom to listen to or watch or read whatever they want whenever they want it, the freedom to swap in their couch for another couch, to swap in computer parts, to participate in a sharing gift economy where through trust and community, they were breaking from the abuses system. They didn't use those terms at the time, but they were really meaningfully breaking from the abuses system for the first time. And as people experienced that, they began to change their political perspective to want to actualize this on a higher scale, to, in their words, become richer than rich. See, and the politicians, the business leaders at the time, they continued to underestimate these movements. They thought people would choose abuses because they were so indoctrinated into that system. They found it synonymous with freedom in their head. And it was kind of like in slavery days when the slave owners thought enslaved people would never rebel because it was natural that they be there. You know, they often referred to people involved in this alternate system as hippies anarchic rebels who just wanted to fight the system in some vague way because they were thoughtless and resentful. A lot of these politicians took it very personally and what they didn't understand is that what was happening was born from something deeper than petty resentments against the ruling class, an expression of a deep human need to be good stewards of the planet on which we live and share and take care of the planet and of the items that have been produced by society, a type of human social relationship that was beyond mere antagonism to their personal interests as, as they saw them at the time. 
The moment when the business class really started to recognize this as a threat to them was when the movement for political decommodification began in earnest, when there was sufficient people who were part of this political practice who were calling on the legal and political powers of society to formalize the decommodification of property, to allow people who were the owners of property to set property free from the abuses system, to sign it over basically on a voluntary basis. Now, the Yusufructian movement was radical on the sly. They pushed a little bit here and there, just, just an exemption for libraries, you know, or push just a, a little bit further. Just We just want the right to make our own property decommodified. We just want to make it illegal to sell what we own now. We want to sign away the right to ever sell or buy it again. We want to make it common. Framing it that way is, I just want the ability to sign my property over to the commons, and like, why don't we have a legal category for that? It's about people's individual choices of what to do with their property. And framing it in those terms was important for getting it passed in the political climate or the legal system of the time. And it also protected it from the attempts to legally challenge it because it wasn't being mandated that all property become this way, just that if you're done with something and you don't want to destroy it, offering people that option to sign something over to the commons, just this beautiful, subtly radical shift. The business classes launched campaign after campaign in the media, doing all kinds of things behind the scenes to try to sabotage and disrupt. One of the early prophets of how this could reshape society was the head of the Wrongtown Business Association and Citizens Council, Bosef Jegby II, from a long line of rich Jegbys in Wrongtown. Bosef had the same curled mustache as his father and his grandfather before him, and he knew the value of a factory. He knew the value of a property asset that increases in value over time. And his grandpa hated that hippie shit. His dad hated that hippie shit. From a young age, hating that hippie shit. There was a way of making sense of the world. So he always distrusted this system in his gut from before it was ever a threat to him. He was actually one of the early people to send in a covert operative to try to destroy what they're making, try to take advantage of the system, take out too much stuff. He was really frustrated to find out that they had limits on how much you could have at a time. You had to justify things. You had to actually talk to people about what you were doing. There was a system to basically be penalized and then eventually removed from the system. He was needing to pay more and more to keep his people in the system causing damage. Yeah, and he would lose saboteurs all the time because once they got involved with the system, you know, their instructions are destroy this lamp so that they see that having this kind of shared property system results in the tragedy of the commons. Things will get destroyed, so destroy this lamp. But they would say, why do I don't want to destroy this dishwasher? I don't want to destroy this nice little end table. I don't want to destroy these shoes. Why destroy them when, oh, I could just, what if I just gave it back to the system? Oh, I might get fired from my job as a saboteur for this system, but I could just use the system to get some of the things that I was relying on money to get before, and then before you know it, they're no longer saboteurs, they're just participants in the movement. And that was one of the really powerful things about that movement at the time, is the way that it helped people get access to the things they need. Not just in the library context, not just in the access to property, but also eventually as the system scaled up and as resources were pooled more and 
more. There was communally owned housing and communally owned institutions of distribution that didn't make a profit. People started leaving their houses to the system and then, oh, this entire block is owned by the Yusufrectian commons or is not owned or is common property. You know, they had different ways of describing what we would just now call things that exist, stuff that you can't destroy, which is everything at this point. At that point was a special designation, stuff that you can't destroy. But people were leaving their inheritances to it. I want my children to make it themselves in the world, so I'm going to leave them of just enough to pay for one semester of college there, and the rest of my billions I use to buy wild land, which I leave to the commons. Why do I need an inheritance when I could just use common property? Piece by piece, chunks of the world just turning from a system where abuses is on the table to a democratically controlled system where abuses is no longer on the table. You know, I have a personal connection to this history. My great, great, great aunt at the time owned an apartment building in downtown Wrongtown. Her children were always saying, give the apartment building to the commons, give it to the commons. And she was like, no, no, no. And it was basically empty at this point because no one wanted to pay the outlandish rents she had. But she said, you'll see when I die, I'll leave it to you and you'll understand what it's like. She thought people would come around to her side up until her dying day with that apartment building. But she left it to her kids and then they said, okay, she's gone now, sign it over to the commons. That's just an old family chestnut that we always tell. And we're ecstatic to have it included in Wrongtown history because that is history. It is, it is history yeah. from Wrongtown. Both of Jegby and the business class, the politicians, they were increasingly desperately firing on all cylinders to try to stop this. But by the time they really noticed what was happening, it was too late. The trajectory was too determined by the wealth and abundance that was coming out of the sharing system. They funded some of the most expensive public relation campaigns of all time. But there's just certain public relations things. You can't really shine a turd. If you're on the side of destroying things, you just really sound like a dick. Yeah, and it was even like financially, but like you pay all these public relations people top dollar to run pro-abuses campaigns. Those people buying expensive properties and stuff, but then become jaded through their jobs and eventually decide to turn that property over to the system. So everywhere, these billionaires and rich people, the Bosef Jegbees of the world and of Wrongtown are hemorrhaging money out to people who are spending that money on items and then deciding to lease those items to the commons. And so it was just an avalanche at this point and everything they tried to do ended up feeding back into the Yusufrectian system kind of in the same way that they, they thought it would happen in reverse, that everything the Yusufrectians did would feed back into the abusive system, but before they knew it, it had just flipped on its head, and their ever more desperate attempts to try and stop the inevitable course of this change grew more horrifying with time, but also just more and more obviously going to fail. And then they did fail. It's That's hard right. to pinpoint the exact moment, of course. Which resource was pooled that did it, or what common asset was democratized as the exact dividing line? Some people say, oh, it was when 94% of resources and goods on the planet were signed over to the system. No, it was 87%. There's the 99%ers. Some people argue that it was inevitable even before any of this started, just for technological reasons. Or people who say that it still technically isn't all the way left because there's that one 
compound on that island of those people who are just really love owning that building and we kind of laugh at them and they still exist but i consider them part of the system at this point they're just using that for their weird religious cult basically is what it is now but they, that's right they still believe in abuses and there's an interesting connection to Wrongtown with that religious cult as well, but we can't get into that today. We're almost out of time. But in the end, what happened to Boseph Jegby is an ironic twist of fate. He was at a chicken restaurant, the last chicken restaurant in town, because they'd all been replaced with food dispensaries where you could get food for free on a sharing basis for being part of a community. And him defiantly eating chicken at the last chicken restaurant in Wrongtown because he really wanted to make sure he owned that corpse before he ingested it. It couldn't be something that was being shared with him. It disgusted him to his core so deeply. He must, before I destroy this, I must own it. He wouldn't even walk on public sidewalks anymore. He would have little bridges drawn from the private buildings where he did his business to his private car that would take him back to his private home. And like he had to like not go to any parks anymore. He really started cutting himself off from the world because he refused to engage with any common property. And it was kind of a sad ending. And I guess perhaps the saddest ending of all is that he choked on too big a chicken bone at the chicken restaurant, a chicken bone that he himself owned. But because all the medical facilities in town had been switched to a communal society, he died in that chicken restaurant choking on his own property. He did have one private doctor with him, but that doctor didn't have the proper equipment, wasn't allowed to get it from anywhere nearby. Some people have speculated he was a sympathizer with the Usufructian system, people who identify with Roman property and do Roman salutes and that sort of stuff and they say that he was sent there to kill him but that's just conspiracy theory that those are abusive cultists who say that I'm saying and they're just wrong yeah the story that goes from the death of Bosif to the abusive cultists of today is for another wrong town history because this segment is over so that is the story of the Usufructian revolution and the advent of Usufructia from a wrong townian perspective and now back to our show and so there's some ideas on what the future ideally should look like in the realm of both property relations and access to information and digital communications technology that can help mediate those relationships, both in an ideal outcome and also some of the first steps in that direction. This has been the Seriously Wrong podcast. It's been a lot of fun, but like all good things, it must come to an end for now. It's not the end. It's just the end of this one episode. You knew it was coming. You saw the numbers ticking down in your podcast app. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a patron, making the entire podcast possible because it wouldn't be without all of those little donations that are coming in. Yeah, it's, it's hugely appreciated. It Making the show is our passion. It's the thing we love to do the most. And yeah, the feedback that we get on the stuff that we release and the ideas and feedback that we get from the community is like massively, massively appreciated. I've, I learn a lot on our Discord, which by the way, if you're not on our Discord and you want to be, send us a message. I know sometimes the links expire we've tried to prevent that from happening but it seems to keep happening yeah it's been a thing with discord as long as i've ever seen as people make non-expiring links and then they expire anyway well well we try to keep on top of it and replace it whenever we get a heads up that it's not working and you're definitely invited to come on. We also have the book club. If you're not already participating, we're just wrapping up. People have been reading Debt, The First 5,000 Years by Graeber, and they're coming up on the final discussion. So anyone who's ever read the book is free to come and participate. It's going to be on the 8th. September 8th. Feel free to join if you've ever read the book. And if you're listening to this in the future, well, that, that day has already passed, unless it's one of the future days between now and then. But that's, that doesn't speak for most of the future. No offense. 
if you're past it, there's probably some book club stuff going on. So poke around and, and uh, it depends how far in the future. I mean, we might all be long dead when you're listening to this. And in that case, I wouldn't expect a book club. Though. There's probably some book club somewhere. They're probably not all gone. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. If there's no seriously wrong book club, there, yeah, there'll be some sort of book. Club. So thanks for listening. Yeah. So now we've covered all those really important asides just to make sure there's no misunderstandings uh, persisting um, based on any time period. <laughs> Yeah, we bid you adieu. We bid you, as we always say, we bid you adieu. Thanks for listening. Yes.